Our scripture reading this morning is from Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. This is the word of God. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. I would definitely encourage you to do so. Uh, one of their short video series is on the wisdom books in the Old Testament. And in it, they compare Proverbs to this uh, wide-eyed, eager teacher that's full of clear instruction. And they compare Job to this wise old sage with all the experiences of life. But then Ecclesiastes is the sharp, middle-aged critic who sees the world cynically. I think it's a clever depiction because as we've been looking through Ecclesiastes, we have seen that uh, Kohelet, or the preacher that we have here as the voice of Ecclesiastes, he surveyed various attempts to find the single satisfying key to life. And he's given a wide sweep of life in his search. He's examined the pleasures of home, the labors of the workplace, the justice of the courtroom, the wealth of the palace. And his conclusion in all of these things is that it's meaningless. Everything is meaningless. There's no happiness. There's no joy. Nothing brings true joy and contentment in these places. They're all like chasing after the wind. Time and death come for everything. But now in chapter 5, the preacher asks, this, if all of those outward pursuits of our life are unable to secure happiness and satisfaction, what about religion? Is it at the temple that humanity can find meaning? Can religious exercises bring the joy which humans, the human spirit craves? And the preacher's answer is yes and no. Because what he sees going on at the house of God is a mockery of authentic worship. As person after person foolishly seeks to control God through their actions. Are we in danger of doing that same thing? Are we trying to manipulate God with our time, our money, our morality? We actually have very little control over the things that matter in life, right? We, we can't control time, can't control death. We can't control the actions of others. Neither can we control God. What Ecclesiastes as a book is trying to teach is a joyful acceptance of God's providence. 
We don't have to see the entire blueprint of our life in order to trust that God is doing something through us, through our life, through our hurtful situations, that it gives meaning to our life and brings glory to God. Joy is found in trusting God, not in controlling him. Life should be marked by acceptance and not by making demands of God. God's word today says this, we can in no way manipulate God. We cannot manipulate him with our piety, not with our prayers, and not with our promises. God will be who he will be. Let's look at that first one this morning. You cannot manipulate God with your piety. Ecclesiastes 5.1 says this, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. That literally means watch your feet. Have you ever tried to walk in a straight line blindfolded? It's impossible. You're never going to get where you're trying to go. It's actually, uh, they've, they've done all of these experiments and people have uh, seen that without fail, everyone ends up walking, swimming, or even driving in circles. There's this inability in humans to travel in a straight line when there's not this fixed point to guide them. And the preacher has a warning against empty worship. The, the manner in which each person went up to the temple needed to be examined. It's interesting that going to the temple is not what's being commanded. That was assumed to be the regular practice of everyone. But the regularity of your worship does not always mean sincerity in your worship. Watch Your Feet had very practical advice for the Jewish people. Because travel to Jerusalem and then up to the Temple Mount, it provided plenty of time for introspection. The city of Jerusalem is situated on a high hill. Later on in their history, Jews traveling to Jerusalem for one of the three annual festivals traditionally sang songs called Psalms of Ascent on the uphill road to the city. These psalms in our Bible are recorded as Psalm 120 through 134. And according to some traditions, the Jewish priests also sang these songs of ascent as they walked up the steps to the temple. How would your attitude shift if you sang songs like this on your way to the temple? Things like Psalm 131, 1 and 2. Lord, my heart is not proud. My eyes are not haughty. I do not get involved with things too great or too wondrous for me. Instead, I have calmed and quieted my soul like a young child with its mother. My soul is like a young child. Or just expressing joy to be going to the house of God. Psalm 122 says, I rejoiced with those who said to me, let's go to the house of the Lord. Our feet were standing within your gates, Jerusalem. In Psalm 84, the sons of Korah find similar joy in the presence of God. It says, how lovely is your dwelling place, Lord of hosts. I long and yearn for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh cry out for the living God. How happy are those who reside in your house, who praise you continually. Happy are the people whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. Better a day in your courts than a thousand anywhere else. These are the words of those who understand that drawing near to listen to God is better than foolishly stumbling into the temple to offer empty sacrifices. 
God speaks against empty sacrifices, foolish offerings that do not come from a penitent heart in Isaiah. In Isaiah, he's speaking in judgment against these people who have been practicing an empty religion. And he says in Isaiah chapter one, I've had enough of your burnt offerings. Who required this from you, this trampling in the court? Stop bringing useless offerings. Your incense is detestable. Your festivals and solemn assemblies, I can't stand them. They're full of iniquity. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will refuse to look at you. Why were their offerings rejected? Why was their religion so empty? Why was it foolish before God? Listen to this church. The manner in which you approach God in worship matters. The attitude that we have when we come together as believers, it it matters. Now, most of you probably didn't have to watch your feet too much as you came to church this morning. You didn't have to walk for miles or climb hills and up steps. And if we aren't careful, though, either the rush of getting out the door or the casual routine of a Sunday morning will distract us from truly approaching the Sunday morning worship service with reverence. Because let's think about it in this way. In the Old Testament, the glory of God came to fill the tabernacle tent in Exodus. The priests and the people had to take great care in how they approached the presence of God in the middle of the And later, the glory of God comes to be in the temple in Jerusalem. And there, too, the presence of God was a place to be approached with reverence. What about today? Our New Testament belief is that Jesus has sanctified his people so that each believer is a dwelling place, the glory of God. This is why our entire lives are meant to be lived in reverent worship. What does this mean for us when we come together on Sunday mornings? Well, if the spirit of God dwells within us, Sunday mornings are a chance for us to experience God in a fuller way than we can achieve on our own. This, what we're doing now, is a rich experience of God's presence. Something that you can't accomplish on your own. This is why the church is commanded in Ephesians 5 to be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything. When we come together as the house of God, it is so that we would enjoy one another and the Spirit of God that's in our midst. We can't manipulate God with piety because it's about drawing near to experience him. It's about coming near to experience him. And it's about listening. It's not just about reverence in the presence of God. It's reverence to the word of God. This language here in verse one, the language of drawing near to listen, it indicates an eagerness to hear and an eagerness to obey what's being said. Where God's word is read and explained it is meant to be heard and obeyed. In 1 Samuel 15, Israel's first king, Saul, he made a mistake in thinking that the words of God were open to, they were an open suggestion. When he was commanded to battle and kill the Amalekites for their previous God's people, he filtered God's commands through his own thought process, to which prophet Samuel says this, 1 Samuel 15, 19. So why didn't you 
obey the Lord? Why did you rush on the plunder and do what was evil in the Lord's sight? But I did obey the Lord, Saul answered. I went on the mission the Lord gave me. I brought back King Agag of Amalek, and I completely destroyed the Amalekites. The troops took sheep, goats, and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was set apart for destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Then Samuel said, Does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? Look, to obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention is better than the fat of rams. When we think that our attendance or our money or our time volunteering inside the walls of the church is what makes God pleased with us, we are offering a sacrifice of fools. There is no substitute for eagerly, eagerly hearing the word of God and joyfully obeying it in every aspect of our life. You cannot manipulate God with your piety, but true worship will fill your soul with a joy, with the joy to be among believers and listening to the preaching of scripture and then a desire to invite others into that worship of God as well. You can't manipulate with your piety and you cannot manipulate God with your prayers. Verse two. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. The warning is against hasty and thoughtless words in prayer. Words which come from the lips, but don't come from the heart. Jesus may have had these verses in mind when he told the story of the two who went up to the temple to pray. This is in Luke 18 says this, Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this one went down to his house justified. The other, because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. In his prayer, the Pharisee is proudly reminding God of what he has done for God. And the tax collector, on the other hand, is humbly relying on God to do what he cannot. The words that we say come from our heart and each word matters. It says, be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. The singular, uh, the singular form of word there in the Hebrew shows an emphasis. It's made as strong as possible. You must be careful about bringing even one thoughtless word before God. That sounds a little severe. It sounds a little strong. But think about what that forces you to do. If every word that you bring to God has this weight, it forces us to examine what we're praying about. 
but it should also encourage us that God cares about our prayers. It's not just an empty religious exercise. Jesus, again, seems to be talking about this idea in Matthew chapter 6 when he teaches on this simple nature of prayer, something that we just uh, read this morning. When you pray, don't babble like the Gentiles since they imagine they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them because your father knows the things you need before you ask. Anytime we study prayer in the Bible, we realize two things. We don't do it enough and we don't know how to do it. To, the, to address the first, simply pray. It's a central part of the life of the church, and God's desire to answer your prayers is great. It's greater even than your desire to pray. Spend time praying by yourself and with others. But regarding the manner in which we pray, the primary problem is that we often begin with the faulty presumption that we are in a position of control. We think that because of how we pray, what we pray, or how many words we use, that then God will act favorably towards us. Some people think they must pray in churchy King James language for God to actually listen and answer. Others think they need more emotion or more volume or the right place, right time. What you say or how you say it is not the issue. The issue is your heart. But we so often think our Heavenly Father is like earthly parents who can be asked at the right time or in the right way to get the answer that we want. I remember as a kid, my friends and I would spend a long time trying to figure out how we're going to ask our parents for a sleepover. Okay, whose mom's in the best mood? Who's had a hard week? Um, who, who do we need, what do we need to kind of work our way around? What excuses can we expect? And what if we make promises? Well, okay, we're not going to stay up that late this time. We're going to be quiet this time. The problem is, is that we think God can be manipulated in that way as well, that we can reason with him. The answer to your prayer does not depend on what you say, how you ask it, or how many words you use, or even the formality or casualness of your words. Rather, it depends on a heavenly father who knows what is best for you. We have nothing to barter with. We have nothing to offer God. We just ask with humble hearts, and we trust that how he answers is best. Now, the preacher in Ecclesiastes offers a proverb in verse 3 to illustrate this point. He says, For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. Cares and anxieties can lead to a panicked response in our mind. Do you know someone who's this nervous talker? They're not comfortable with silence. Things get uncomfortable and awkward, they just keep talking and talking. Our prayers should not be like that. It shouldn't just be this, um, you know, heartfelt, um, not knowing what to say. Many words, they often can reveal how full of our own business we are. Sometimes, though, we do have a lot of cares and not a lot of words. Even here, there is comfort for us. We don't have the words to say. Romans 8.26 says that the Spirit also helps us in our weakness. Because we do not know what to pray for as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with inexpressible groanings. Uh, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan, said this, In prayer, 
It's better to have a heart without words than words without a heart. You cannot manipulate God with your prayers. And finally, you cannot manipulate God with your promises. Look at verse 4 with me. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Vows were not a major component of Jewish worship. They were never commanded, and in a way, they were discouraged. Yet here and elsewhere in Scripture, we see evidence that they had become a common practice. The problem here was that these vows to God were being quickly made and quickly broken. Vows were pledges worshipers would make to God as a part of the offering or the sacrifice process. The vow was made so that God might answer a specific request. And there are several examples in the Old Testament of such vows. Number six describes the Nazarite vow, which was a time set apart Set apart, that's what Nazarite means. Set apart for the Lord until the person could fulfill a promise. Another example is Hannah, who asked the Lord for a child and vowed that he would be set apart. After Samuel was old enough, she took him to serve in the tabernacle with Eli. In the New Testament book of Acts, Paul and other believers are said to have taken and fulfilled vows as well, apparently similar to a Nazarite vow, because on each occasion it says that they shaved their heads in order to complete this vow. And we don't have the specifics of what this looks like, but we know that they were still in the practice of making these commitments to God and keeping these commitments. Deuteronomy 23 describes vows to God in this way. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, do not be slow to keep it, because he will require it of you, and it will be counted against you as sin. But if you refrain from making a vow, it will not be counted against you as sin. Be careful to do whatever comes from your lips, because you freely vowed what you promised to the Lord your God. Vows are commitments, and they're not a bad thing, but... Making casual promises to God is not wise because most often the promises that we make to God are things that only God can accomplish anyway. We're doomed from the start. You promise to read your Bible more, study harder at school, restore relationships with family and friends, break habits of sin. God is not asking for your promises or your perfectly worded goals. When you only give God empty promises, it's like, it's like building a house of cards. You're, you're trying to carefully place things according to your own terms of obedience and godly living. I'm going to do it like this. And all it's going to take is one little puff of inconvenience for you to start back all over again. Jesus tells us that life in the kingdom of God is much more concrete. The actions needed are not convenient, and they're not on our terms. He, he says if your right eye causes you to sin, remove it. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Much more severe and direct. Verse 6 warns us, don't let your mouth cause your whole body to be guilty. If God exposes an issue, deal with it. 
the warning from the preacher here is that by not keeping your commitment to God, you bring more guilt upon yourself. Verse 5, that it's better to not make a vow than to vow and not pay it. It means hold your tongue. Keep, keep your mouth shut. One example in our culture where we make vows is marriage. It is better to be single and unmarried than to get married and break your vows. In addition to marriage vows, we make private and public promises to God, like dedicating ourselves that we will raise our children up and know and love Jesus, and that we will be a better spouse, that we'll not lose our temper anymore with our children. But we fail to keep our promises. And you can hear a sermon and be convicted, and on the inside, you say, I need that. I, I need more community. I need to be more involved. I need to confess. I need to get rid of hidden sin so that I'll be free of it. You leave the service with the best intentions, but you never follow through on them. The preacher says not to let your mouth make you sin, and not to let the messenger uh, not tell the messenger that it was a mistake to make that vow to begin with. Now that messenger most likely prefer, or refers to a temple official who was ensured that your vows were fulfilled. You would do this at the time of the offering, right? You would say, like, this is my vow to God, this is my offering. And then it'd be, what, two weeks later or something, you'd hear a knock on your door. All right, how, how are you doing? Did you do it? And so there, there's some accountability in that as well. And when that person confronts you, you're not to say, oh, it was a mistake. I shouldn't have said that. I didn't mean it. The truth is, is that you will at some point be uh, confronted by your unkept promises. Your mouth drags you into sin of making a vow you could not keep. And then you try to excuse yourself by saying that it was a mistake. We've already said this. The words you voice to God, they matter to God. Do not try to excuse yourself. Instead, take ownership. Confess it. Don't try to hide your rash commitments. The story in Acts about Ananias and Sapphira illustrates this in Acts 5. They sold some property and said that they were giving all of the proceeds to the church, but they secretly kept back some for themselves. And God killed both of them. It would have been okay for them to keep some of the money. They just should have been honest about it. Peter accuses them of testing the spirit of God. Religion that tries to manipulate God is meaningless. It reveals a poor theology and a small view of God. Verse 7 says that people make empty vows because they live in a religious dream world. They think that words are the same as deeds. Their worship is not serious, so their words are not dependable. They enjoy the good feelings that come when they make these promises, but they do themselves more harm than good. And they, they like to dream about fulfilling their vows, but they never get around to doing it. This is a make-believe religion that neither glorifies God nor builds Christian character. When we rob the Lord of the worship and honor that is due him, we are also robbing ourselves of the spiritual blessings that come to those who worship him in spirit and in truth, right? That it's a matter of worship to God, but it's also a matter of groundedness in what is true and what is right and honesty. 
the preacher concludes in, a, in Ecclesiastes that this type of religion is not the answer. It's vanity. It's like chasing after the wind. When, you un, when your understanding of God becomes a dream and not a reality, so you cover it up with the fact that you don't know him by lots of theological words, or, um, that's pretty much useless. When you don't really know God, so you go through the motions of morality and you go through the motions of religion or it's all about the words that come from your mouth. All of that is useless. In the search for a unified meaning of life, it is not found in religious formality or hypocrisy. Instead, the preacher calls us to old paths. He says, fear God. A God-fearing person keeps commitments, relies on scripture, and worships God from a heart of humble submission. The error of our age is that we make much of God's eminence, his, his being with us, instead of his transcendence. When Job was confronted with the otherness of God in Job 42, he can only respond this way, I spoke about things I didn't understand. I had heard about you, but now my eyes have seen. Therefore, I reject my words. I'm sorry for them. I'm dust and ashes. We should humbly submit to and stand in awe of the God who knows all of our sins. He knows all of your empty promises. Before the God who spun billions of galaxies into existence and in whom we live and move and have our being, what can we bring to the table other than our penitent, humble worship, recognizing him, fearing him? We cannot manipulate God with our piety. We can't manipulate God with our prayers and we cannot manipulate God with our promises. And yet... Because of Christ, we can approach God in a closer way than anyone who ever climbed those temple steps in Jerusalem. Hebrews 10, 19 says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering since he who promised is faithful. Despite our careless words and our empty religion, Jesus brings us back to God. He fully cleanses us. He allows us to come boldly before God's throne. Christ has changed how we approach God. Now there are no sacred structures, but there is a sacred people who gathers together as the house of God. Meaning can be found in the worship of God in these four ways. There's some, just some points of application this morning. Take time to prepare your hearts for worship. I know it's difficult. I have to wrangle kids and get them here. It doesn't feel like I'm taking a moment to say, okay, like we're about to come into the presence of God in a fuller way than I am the rest of my week. And yet some of the best advice I can give is that it begins on Saturday night, right? Mentally preparing checklists, make sure everything's ready. 
um, and make, making sure that even some of the unspoken things, maybe between your, your spouse or friends or things like that, is, is out of the way so that you can come together in unity before God, reverently, able, reverently worshiping him. Take time to prepare your hearts for worship. Pray wisely. Pray wisely. If you don't know what to, to say, I think the emphasis in Ecclesiastes, it says, let your words be few. So maybe we should avoid our words and maybe look to the word of God. So pray the Psalms. Uh, look for other prayers from the church. The Valley of Vision is a great little book on, uh, of Puritan prayers that helps orient our heart and pray in a way that sometimes, I, I, when I pray through those, I'm like, I've never even thought about that sin in my life or that confession. It's very revealing. Also the, the book of common prayer. God wants us to pray. He wants us to build that relationship, grow in our love and knowledge of him. And so if you feel like the words of your prayers are lacking or there's uh, just, it's missing something, then, then maybe go to the words of God and pray those back to him. Look at the prayers in Acts. How, how would you pray? Look at how Paul closes his letters in praying for people. Pray those words as well. Number three, practice silence. Practice silence. Um, many uh, Jewish priests as well as um, uh, you know, monastic um, you know, monks throughout the, the years in the church have had a sanctuary of silence, a, a time of, of quiet, reverence before God. Uh, even the Mennonite brethren and many of their gatherings, they will have this time of silence as a part of the worship service, a moment of uh, introspection, and a, a moment of, of looking to God uh, and trying to, to put, put itself in a proper place. And in a culture of noise and distraction, uh, silence is a positive presence for us. And if we spend more time listening instead of speaking, um, we will leave the presence of God changed for the better. And then lastly, in Christ, we let our yes be yes and our no be no. We keep our word. We make good on our promises. How great would it be if the church of Jesus Christ was the one place in all the earth that people kept their promises? One day, church... We will truly and forever step foot into the house of God. And with that hope in our hearts, I'm going to read Psalm 65, 1 through 5. Praise is rightfully yours, God, in Zion. Vows to you will be fulfilled. All humanity will come to you, the one who hears prayer. Iniquities, they overwhelm me. Only you can atone for our rebellions. How happy is the one you choose and bring near to live in your courts. We will be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. You, you answer us in righteousness with awe-inspiring works, God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of all the distant seas. Pray with me. Father, now this, this morning, uh, we reflect on the manner in which we come before you. And I pray, Father, that we are always consistently examining ourselves, examining our words, examining our actions, and questioning why we're doing it. Are we doing it 
to make you happy or to earn our salvation? Or are we coming truly humble, penitent, thankful for what you have accomplished, what only you could have accomplished, Father? I pray that even as we go, uh, as we're told to, to live this life of worship and sacrifice, that in our daily life, we will approach uh, the workplace, the classroom, the home with the same reverence, knowing that we are about your work and the worship of you in our daily life as well. So thank you for this time and this word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.